You're now listening to the No GPS Podcast with host Mez and Aaron. Remember to share, like, subscribe, and follow. Got a show idea, complaint, interesting take, or just want to say what's up? You can reach us at nogpspodcast.gmail.com. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome to another episode of No GPS. Today I'm with my co-host Mez and special guest, Professor Daniel McNeil. Daniel McNeil wrote the book, Thinking While Black. We, of course, did three episodes on that wonderful book, Thinking While Black, translating the politics and popular culture of a rebel generation. And it takes two seminal figures of that period, uh, Professor Paul Gilroy and cultural critic Armin White, to kind of delve in and understand uh, and translate the politics and popular culture of that era. So Professor Daniel McNeil is an award-winning author, editor, and mentor who explores how movement, travel, and relocation have transformed and boosted creative development, the writing of cultural history, and the calculation of political choices. Over the past two decades, he has contributed to research, teaching, and program development within and across disciplinary and institutional boundaries in the United Kingdom, the United States, in Canada. In 2021, he was appointed the Queen's National Scholar Chair in Black Studies in recognition of his award-winning research achievements, his development of innovative, collaborative, and interdisciplinary research programs, and his provision of rich and rewarding learning environments for students to engage the connections between the arts, social justice, and decolonial thought. He is currently a producer and co-host of the Black Studies podcast. That's a little bit about Professor Daniel McNeil, who we have here. Daniel, how are you doing today? Hey, Aaron, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for that kind, gracious, caring introduction. Uh, It's wonderful to be here with you, Amez. You know, it was such a treat to listen to your podcast, your insights into Andor, are living rent-free in my head and so i appreciate everything that you do and then to hear the care with which you engage with the book uh thinking well black um we live in a world where so many of us get into these bubbles they could be political they could be professional and for me, writing that book, it was always about how how could I think of connecting with curious, imaginative readers. And you are both those ideal, imagined readers. Um, and taking that work and, and really translating it for your particular interests and goals, it's, yeah, it's been incredible to listen to those podcasts and i thank you uh, very much i'm so grateful <laughs> all right uh yeah. thanks thanks for even uh, equally kind words uh, just now that's uh, the most gratifying thing you can hear when you uh take a book and uh, dedicate that much time to and thinking the whole time is this how an academic podcast would do it or is this how one of those you know those you know there's like podcast rankings now 
uh, is this how they would do it but then me and aaron just did it no it's no gps let's so just keep it within the way we would do it but um before we start recording you guys already started to uh, connect on certain things because you're on on the canadian side of things um me i so i just for the for the audience to have an idea of this odd uh, trio <laughs> how we kind of overlap in certain ways even though you know it shouldn't uh, be obvious on, uh, on on the first look is me i met aaron in 1999 when he moved to eritrea to go to high school met him at a basketball court hence why this podcast focuses on a lot of basketball <laughs> even our metaphors are very basketball related uh he was there for a couple of years left in 01 went back to canada and then came in 2002 for a the summer visit and that was the last time we'd seen each other in person so since then it's been it's kind of been like a ongoing in vivo um you know experience of the digital age of relationship on these platforms as they evolve from all the different kinds of you know whatever was my space and high five and black planet and skype and uh MSN Messenger and Facebook and and now we're here on Riverside uh, <laughs> podcasting. So uh it's it's an odd one but 2002 was the last time I seen him. 2003 was the first time I picked up Fanon's Black Skin White Mask. I read about two chapters and a half before I kind of thought this is too much for me because I just left university after second year and had to pivot towards work. uh finding a, a a kind of work that was uh livable in those circumstances under national service and stuff uh so fast forward six years later from 03 to 09 is when i entered daniel mcneil's class in hall um made us buy a cultural studies reader <laughs> and uh it was also the the book and the class that made me finally uh kind of think i think it's now now it's time to pick up fanon again and read given the kind of resources and time i had at the time to to revisit that 2010 maybe me and aaron link up i think at this point aaron was still studying theology and philosophy at the time so he was reading folks like anais al-abrahan who are adjacent to lewis gordon so lewis gordon was kind of the connector there i sent him some lewis gordon stuff and black existentialism black philosophy became kind of our way in since then i've pulled him into cultural theory a little bit more i think i yanked him over <laughs> and uh armin white has a way of uh, <laughs> of magnetizing readers like that as well so um yeah that's that's how that's um that's i think that's the connection and if you guys wouldn't mind repeating there was an overlap between 01 and 05 maybe on your on your ends and your side of the world yeah i i started undergrad at uft in uh, 2005 2006 and if i knew that folks like professor daniel mcneil were, were there i would have like reached out but obviously you come in in your first year you're just you feel alienated isolated all the professors are telling you you can't write uh <laughs> you have to learn how to read i was in the the writing center like every week uh trying to figure this thing out and uh finally got the hang of it but didn't get into like real campus life until maybe like 07 08 09 But yeah, yeah. So it, I think you were around the same time you were there, right? You were doing your PhD in um in history? Mhm. Yeah, I came to Toronto for the first time two days before September 11th in 2001. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
and I loved, you know, I said to all my friends, if I'm going to have something put on my tombstone, I think I'm going to get what both of you said about me. And that is, uh, we think he might know Canada better than Canadians. Right? I just want that <laughs> in blazer. <laughs> no, honestly, I mean, it's in, it's in the beginning of Thinking While Black where you really break it down, right? And then then reading your other works like on, on Canadian multiculturalism, I'm like, oh, gosh, like my whole childhood, everything made sense. Like the, 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 the not-for-profit sector, everything, policymakers and, you know, Canada is a very, you know, has a federal feel, right? It is, it's not like America as far as like Republican, not in the sense of the political party, but like, you know, power and agency is kind of given towards like the states and like the counties and everything like that. You know, Canada's, or at least Toronto, as I've experienced it, as an amalgamated, you know, supposed megacity was not like that, right? It's very bureaucratic. It's big. It's thick. It's the top nose better than the bottom. And like you said, the, the kind of belittling of the reading public and thinking that they don't have the ability to go out and do their own research or understand irony. I, you know, I was like, yeah, that's how I felt. I felt like it was condescending. Like I was at St. George, right? St. George campus. And I'm, I'm sure you were there like condescending right it's 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 so it made so much sense yeah he does understand canada better than canadians i always say it takes an outsider to tell you exactly who you are you know it's uh it's, um but uh, i don't know i sense a little bit of um maybe daniel you haven't had had that said to you before or maybe as often as uh me and Aaron did because the outsider also has to contend with you know being the outsider like what do you know who do you you know who what do you know what can you say to us yeah yeah no I, I think what I appreciated it is that you both articulated it in poetic and incisive language like I hear it a lot from other Canadians but it's in a sense of uh Oh, you say interesting things, <laughs> right? You, 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 have, you have a lot of interesting things to say. And the way in which that word interesting is so loaded in Canada because of how Canadians define themselves vis-a-vis -vis the United States means that when people say interesting, they don't necessarily mean that's good. Yeah, yeah. They mean that it's, 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 it's loaded, it's fraught, yeah. it might lead to conflict. Um, so I think a lot of people say what you have communicated, but they haven't said it in a way that um, is encouraging, uh, celebratory, uh, appreciative, but more in the sense of, okay, we see what you're doing and we're not used to you being observed in that way. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Canadians yeah. are always doing it to other people, right? Especially yeah. to Americans. Mm -hmm. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. I've, mm -hmm. I've, I've had similar experiences here in London. Um, usually the immigrant is represented, helped out, serviced. But in my case, I, even though I needed those services and I needed that help and I needed that assistance, I could speak back to them in the, in, in the English language, but with a kind of Eritrean perspective and having you know it's, and a lot of people I've come across are not used to that and it's uh, you you ask us for help but you also make other demands of us that we need to think through um, on the word interesting I, you remind me of Toby Miller once uh, saying something similar how academics never say I thought this movie was phenomenal amazing 
I loved it. They always say it's interesting. <laughs> that film is interesting. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the most they'll ever allow their uh, feelings to get involved. But uh, we we should probably move ahead into the first couple of. Um, Aaron, do you want to go with yours first, uh, or do you want to? My mine are a kip- bit more general, kind of on the yeah. theoretical uh, approach. Well, I guess uh, connected to what we're talking about right now, and then we can kind of like segue into the book proper. I wanted to ask you this question, Daniel. So where are the spaces in Black Canadian life where you've witnessed convivial multicultural activity? I ask that because so many of the spaces in which they would occur, those public spaces, uh, Gilroy and White would associate with a Black public sphere, uh, you know, cultural freedom, um, expressive cultures, you know, they're increasingly becoming financialized and securitized to the point of, you know, limit, limiting any kind of social life really from occurring. And um, so like we've retreated from, you know, securitized space, like literally like it's 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 owned by REITs and 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 different uh, private equity firms like, you know, BlackRock or Blackstone. And we've we've kind of taken up a public space in the digital world. Right. And on social media. But that's not social. That's private. So I was I was wondering, where have you seen those kinds of convivial multiculturals occur, you know, outside of how normally we understand, like, multiculturalism from an institutional perspective especially in Canada you know we have the big um you know Carabana or I don't know what they call it now and you got the 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 big festivals right that show off the multicultural flair but they don't really get to the heart and soul right they're not convivial like so where have you seen like those convivial black cultures occur great question um Really appreciate your reflections around thinking about convivial multicultures where we can think about how we coexist, right? So how we coexist, not in the sense of we ignore the pain and suffering, uh, the banality that surrounds us, but how we acknowledge that, but also ensure that the conversations, the movements that we have with other people are bringing life, right? Are bringing a certain soulfulness, bringing a certain sense of newness into being. And the two examples that come to mind uh, in relation to your question, I've talked about or relate to art exhibits, Um, One is working with one of my graduate students uh, at Queen's, Talene Took, and as a result of one of the conversations we had in class, we had a class together called Black Atlantic Exchanges, where we were thinking about how to bring together ideas, thinkers from across geographical and historical spaces. Uh, Talene created, uh, co-created this exhibit that was inviting people to consider careful listening. So it wasn't an art gallery where you'd necessarily go and see things on the wall, but you went and you listened carefully. And one of the things that I wrote about to accompany the exhibit was an event, I think it was in 2005, uh, where Blockorama, which was a space 
uh, during Pride that kind of had a block party that celebrated uh, black queer cultures. And it's actually where I met Richard Eiton for the first time, right? There's that blockorama. And I didn't know him as Richard Eiton. It was just like, oh, this is Capri's friend, right? Like a DJ, right? Um, and the conviviality there was kind of expressed were uh, the rain started coming down. So the DJ had to stop playing. And the crowd, rather than kind of retreating, stayed there and started linking hands, getting into a circle and singing Alios, follow me. Like, follow me, follow me. And that moment of seeing that, that awareness that whenever black communities, communities that are often demonized, demonized, stigmatized in the global north are coming together and aware that they'll always come under a certain type of pressure, right? They always need to anticipate the threat, right? In this case, the threat of rain spoiling play, or, you know, um, and I think about, you know, that Marvin Gaye uh, album cover for what's going on, like the, the rain jacket and the collars up. It's a sense that, you know, there's the rain, but you can always anticipate that and meet it with idiosyncratic style. And that conviviality, you know, when people were there um, in that circle was that sense of, okay, there's this um, unanticipated event or this event that, that's not to our um, ideal course of action, but we're going to meet it and we're going to meet it together. And, you know, that was, that was for me a convivial multicultural space, you know, in terms of people united in a certain love of house music, but also uh, owning that space. And then I remember the DJ coming back on when the the rain subsided and picking the perfect track um, of Shona, Shona Scoffrey's Days Like These, right? Here Comes the Sun, right? And that, 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 that was a life-changing uh, experience with music, right? Not so much that Yes, the musical selections, but the conviviality of uh, how we experienced that, how we navigated that. So that would be one. Um, and then maybe a more recent one, uh, you know, thinking about your, your comments around private and public. There was a recent exhibit at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Toronto. Um, I think it was called Dancing in the Light. And it was part of a series where they bring private collections into the public. So this was a collection um, curated by Kenneth Montague, you know, a collector in Toronto. And he wanted to imagine it as capacious. So in addition to the artwork, there was a research table. And the research table had 
albums. You know, there was Marvin Gaye, um, there was Alice Coltrane, there was books. So you know, the, a special moment for me is seeing you know, Thinking While Black next to Marvin Gaye's album cover, right? Um, and thinking about that sense, because we often talk about in terms of interdisciplinary work, you know, how does your work maybe inform someone outside of your discipline? Sometimes we talk about you know, collaborations with artists, but to see one's work taken up in a completely different platform, right? And, to see, and, and that for me is, is really special because it's, the desire to say, how can we meet? How, what can this say to someone who just loves to go to public spaces like museums, art galleries, and is longing for something that allows them to either connect their experiences with other things in the world or just, um, think and imagine things they've not previously clarified or thought before right right wow that's brilliant yeah like especially like public spaces is when you can kind of use psychoanalytical jargon but like you can encounter the unconscious you know those aspects of yourself that like in a private space you would not learn or you would not be pushed past that boundary and so like those kinds of public spaces like at the museum of contemporary art like that's so important because that's where the, the lines get crossed and then we understand and see each other and we can grow empathy or um, a greater understanding of ourselves in the world and see ourselves in others as well not just ourselves and others so yeah that was wonderful okay okay wow wow yeah, I was going to actually ask why the title uh, Thinking While Black. I, I remember I was reading it in public. <clears throat> Someone I knew looked at the cover and said, "What? oh, you're still on that black existentialism thing. Like He thought it was like an entry, entry in black epistemology or something like that. Thinking and while black. Like, oh, well, read read the whole title. And, and he said, who are these guys? I know of Gilroy, but who is this other guy? So, um, yeah, if you could say why, maybe just like an anecdotally why you came up with that title. Um, but generally, I was my my question would, was um, how the book reminded me of your this is from the, from the early days of reading you. you. You always emphasize generational units or generational cohorts, and uh, I even in the book I had to go back to the um, resistance through ritual book that contained the article on um, consciousness of class and uh, consciousness of generation um, because generate as I don't know I, me and Aaron talk about this all the time I don't know whether I'm learning new things as they are out in the world or learning new things because I'm getting older and generationally the g generational consciousness starts to mess with you why do I as a first-gen immigrant for example because I remember even, I think in a pod I mentioned this, you put it always in quotation marks, the idea of first or second generation immigrants. Um, why do I get along more with God, uh, with first generation immigrants who are like twice my age <laughs> here, more than my own kind of generational uh, kind of uh, peers? 
Um, but yeah, this this grouping of even in the past you've done it with uh, both Gilroy White and Gordon. What what led you to think through generation, or do you think generation is important? The I believe the article in Resistance to Ritual is more looking at it of how generational consciousness or the idea of generation obfuscates or conceals class consciousness. Um, we've come a long way now. There's a lot of things that have problematized it that that kind of class distinction on its own um so yeah i was gonna ask you generally generally about generational consciousness and what leads you to what led you to think through that in the pod we, we also talked about how maybe there is something to the to the, the idea that people like me and aaron are drawn to the generation just before us a few years before us as they kind of lead us into you know, we, we step into the, the path that they lead lead us as, as you are just before us and maybe White and Gilroy are just before you, if that makes sense. Yeah. Thanks so much, man. Um, there's, there's a lot there, right? So there's the title of the book. Title of the book. Maybe we start there. Uh, that was from my editor or, or like an offhand comment my editor made at one point, you know, just in a email conversation that uh, this seems to be a book about thinking while black or and I kind of you know left it there because it was going to be something very different it was going to be something like a tale of two critics or um, structures of feeling in the black Atlantic and uh, the more and more I thought about it the more I realized that people might not get the reference to the tale of two cities because um, or, or if they did they tended to just read it as a tale of two cities not a tale of two critics and uh the structures of feeling would have worked very well with a certain type of audience people in art institutions maybe universities um, but I just don't think it would have resonated so much outside of those spaces. And yeah, I ended up going with Thinking While Black and trying to have my cake and eat it as well with the subtitle, right? So the subtitle <laughs> becomes important. And yeah, I get, I get what you're saying about the question of generation, right? The way I tried to think about it in the book was this isn't really about generation it's about specific political and cultural generations right so it's trying distances right so gilroy is part of tony blur's generation right but that doesn't mean right. Right? it's, it's they're, they're not necessarily connected in that way right it's anything, part of yeah. yeah it's part of nick hornby's generation right uh, but the way I thought about it more was, you know, Linton Kwesi Johnson's idea of a rebel generation. Right. right. And that moment, so it was more, okay, how do I address that special moment in, I would say, early 70s, um, where a certain generational cohort starts to make demands on you know on that in that context on the British state um, 
and thinking about how, like you said, in relation to their parents who may have understood themselves as uh, British subjects, but not necessarily British citizens, right? What does it mean for people who have uh, clearly articulated that we have our right? This is our green and pleasant land, right? We 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 deserve to be uh, respected within this political unit. We are not guests. We are not here for you to simply extract our labor and spit us out. Um, so I wanted to think about that and, and the, the, to think about the idea of young black teenagers as well, right? To think about, you know, that desire, that, that word I think comes up a lot. I remember famous reflections on cultural studies, talking about cultural studies as a desire. And I think for me, addressing what was it that young people wanted when they were puttering around bookstores, right? So I, I kind of talked a lot about Gilroy and the University of Sussex bookstore and coming across resistance by uh, resistance through rituals, or Armand White puttering around the newsagent and coming across Pauline Kael's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. So it's about the desire for something, but also the revolutionary curiosity or the openness that I think is sometimes foreclosed as we get older. Right. So Mez, you talked about it in terms of maybe I am more aware as I move through life, but also do we also foreclose certain things, right? And is there that moment in our teenage? Um, Because whenever you ask people, you know, what's the music that means most to them, almost invariably they talk about the music of their teenage years or early 20s. And so I wanted to get at that. And... Uh, that that was that was kind of important, yeah. And then to address it in terms of, you know, the the glib way I tend to talk about the book is what happens to young soul rebels um, if they don't die before they get old, right? Yeah. Right. Mm, okay. <laughs> yeah. I know what happens to them on the, on the urchin side. Yeah. <laughs> well, now 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 Armin White and Paul Gilroy kind of. I see them differently now through that. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, I like that as well. Cultural studies is a kind of desire. Um, it, I, I don't know where I read this. This was maybe like a reader on postmodernism. I forget who it was. Who was kind of giving an, an overarching, trying to come up with the different definitions of the concept of postmodernism. And in his account he kind of says that within the academy or within the university cultural studies is kind of a symptom of postmodernism as a, as a kind of product of it or a creation of it um, but now that you say it's also kind of desire it kind of takes me back to walking in that summer of 09 into a, an open day at Hull University and seeing everyone you know in their own different corners uh, greeting prospective students 
and I'm, I'm literally three, maybe two months removed from having my residency in, in Britain, right? Like my uh, five-year uh, leave to re- leave to remain. And I see Athena Karachajani sitting by herself <laughs> reading because there's no one even approaching cultural studies. Oh, okay. But but that's <laughs> but uh, but that's the one I, I, I went, you know, I made a beeline for from the beginning because I had this. So that's kind of like, you know, the way especially I think of desire now. It was always meant to be for me to to go to to that uh, to that space. Um, yeah. Uh, the other thing I would say is, me and Aaron are a bit different. It, yes, of course, teenage years, the music that we keep going back to is from our teenage years. But we have this odd fascination with the music that came out when we were born. So, mm. the early '80s <laughs> and the 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 kind of the the movement of funk from one type. To another at that moment it's something we go we, we go back to all the time we have a long spotify playlist that we try to keep within that that frame there's something in the air that, at the time that kind of uh, um but anyways that's just anecdotal um aaron do you want to go ask the second one and or uh... oh one thing maybe i could i could say just about that concept of second generation because I know that you brought it up. Why? Yeah, yeah. Why did you put the scare quotes around the around the fit? I think I tend to do it because it's so selectively deployed, right? So by that, um, we so rarely talk about Canadians who have parents from the US and UK as second generation immigrants. So Mike Myers, both of his parents are from Liverpool. No one talks about him as a second-generation immigrant. He's just Canadian. And so thinking about it in that term, in terms of how it gets imposed on certain groups, um, the, what, what would be the Enoch Powell term on immigrant-descended populations, right? Certain mm. populations that are marked and some that are not. And so just yeah. thinking about you know, that inconsistency, hypocrisy um, is why I tend to put in the quote marks yeah yeah definitely there's a there's a codedness to the to the language how it's uh, used and uh, used and abused yeah um, yeah I was uh, I was wondering because that connection between ourselves when we arrived and when our parents arrived versus a generation that never did have to arrive they just are from here and for whom um, the, you know Britishness, the very concept of Britishness is at stake, you know. Um, actually, the, the different ways that people come around the table and speak about it and differences emerge and how they view things, uh, I think a lot of times pivots on that generational kind of um, experience. Because even in the article, they I think they claim it's uh, it's not just what generation you are, it's how, or how, or, or class you are, it's how those things are perceived and experienced in your own time, in your own everyday um, kind of clock, you know. Um, so, so, yeah, it's just from my experience, it's always been in the air, this generational gap. And even though on, on a lot of things we try to, to hold hands, it just keeps emerging. But you're right, yeah. But, I mean, with the white immigrants, um, the, the term immigrant doesn't even apply to to a lot of white immigrants, you know. No, I, no. I, I remember Earl's Court here in West London being famous for Australians who who do all kinds of uh, bartender work or uh, 
uh, while you know also just enjoying life freely with no papers but nobody would think of raiding a, a british pub you know and asking for for visas <laughs> even though that happens quite regularly with say south asian or caribbean communities who are trying to run a business and uh, yeah that's that's definitely true um yeah but thanks for clarifying that that's yeah. cool sorry Aaron. i love that yeah 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 <laughs> i mean yeah just even if you i don't I, i'm not on his wikipedia but you know when they talk about michael myers it's just he's from scarborough that's it <laughs> it's just yeah, and I didn't know that both of his parents were from Liverpool, but I've had like teachers like that where, you know, you think they're just like white Canadians, but you meet their parents, you know, their parents will come to school. Maybe one day I had a, had a high school teacher and then you're like, hey, you're not Canadian. <laughs> such a, it was, I remember I'm, I remember thinking to myself, like, white people are immigrants, too. Like I was in high school. I'm like scratching my head. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, for sure. I mean, I I know about all of that because of. The claiming that went on when Liverpool want, was to host the 2008 Capital of Culture. So they just oh, went yeah. around claiming everyone. So Halle Berry became Liverpudlian because her mom is from Liverpool. And so oh, it's what? just like, okay, <laughs> yeah, because it was just the sense of we are this hotbed of culture. So Mike Myers, Halle Berry, they were all became honorary liverpool uh, yeah yikes yeah wow now that's branding that's city branding on, an, on, mm-hmm. on another, another level wow that's that's uh that's global <laughs> all right so the, the question i wanted to ask you um so given proper inclusion into the canon of black academic and journalistic discussions how do you feel armand white's eclectic work spanning decades would enrich the field of black studies and just the the cultural life of students in general Mm-hmm. Because I know that for me, like I got introduced to Armin White through Mezzan, and when I started to read him, especially the Resistance, I was like, "What is going on?" I'm like, "Oh my goodness, this is." It made so many things made make so much sense to me. Uh, obviously, Michael Jackson, like we said in one of the pods, um, but like, I, like, what do you think that impact would be? I think I think students would would love, especially early Armin. I think they would just go crazy about it. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, great question again. Um, I mean, you could unpack the question in a couple of different ways. So there's the sense of saying, what would it just mean to demystify and deconstruct the notion of a canon by inviting reflection about Armand White, Adolf Reed, others, right? I think that would be, that's an interesting question because you get, you basically get the marketing of public intellectuals like, to use a football reference, like the Champions League teams, right? So there's a big six and it's like, okay, you get to know, it doesn't even need to be a big six. It could just be, you just need to know Man City and maybe Arsenal and Liverpool and that's it. So if you need want to understand black British culture, yeah, you just need Stuart Hall and Paul Gilroy and maybe Hazel Carby, right? And that becomes that type of uh, kind of patronizing tokenism that I think goes on. And I think something similar happens in the cultivation of black public intellectuals in the 1990s around, okay, you know Cornel West, you know Bell Hooks, you know Henry Louis Gates Jr. And it's like tick, move on right rather than 
okay, this is these these are not people who exist simply to explain uh, the ironies, complexities, intricacies, complexities of black life to you, right? They are part of ongoing conversations, um, multicultural conversations. And so if you if you step back and just ask, okay, how are how is the notion of an intellectual constructed? Right? What does it depend on in terms of cronyism, in terms of access to networks? Then that's an important exercise, I think, for students to consider. Right? Who gets in? Why? Um, and then you get into interesting things around the acceptable boundaries of discourse. So one reason white is dismissed um, within film critic circles is he's just seen as, you know, he's not really serious. Right? Seriousness tends to be used a lot. But part of it is also he, sometimes it's the targets of his work, okay, i.e. how can he have this opinion? But sometimes it's also about the tone with which he writes, i.e. seen as too cruel um, and not having a certain standard of an understanding of professional writing, right? To not go out of one's way to hurt, right? Um, and so that becomes... I think that's an interesting debate as well around what are the types of language that we deem acceptable and how is it that if someone becomes, someone enters into uh, public discourse as a public intellectual, certain things can be excused and what can't be excused. And or what becomes the, the moment in which they become. As much as people enter into public intellectual canons, they also get cancelled from them right? or you know, removed from them. So I think that's an interesting story. And then there's the question around what is it about the content of White's work that might be of interest? And for me, I, I think there's a consistent engagement with works of art and culture. Some of it that is well known, you know, so I think he provides a different way of looking, you know, a queering or a um, subverting of established ways of looking at pop artists like Spielberg, Michael Jackson, etc. So he provides a different way of thinking, deepening the conversation about that. But I think if, if students are engaged with white, there's also an awareness that um, there are all kinds of amazing artists that they've never heard before, never been aware of before, that are doing incredible work about what it is to be human, what it is to believe in making one's mark on the dreams of others. 
So, you know, I would never have known about Roy Anderson, this incredible Swedish filmmaker, without Armand White. Probably, right? You know, you can never say never, right? But but it, it's unlikely. You know, he was my access point to this, you know, intriguing thinker. You know, when you, you talk about convivial multicultures, that's where I learned so much about convivial multicultures. Yes, from from Gilroy's writing, from the writing of lots of wonderful sociologists and ethnographers, but also through the films of Roy Anderson. Like and his careful powers of observation. So that's that's I find White fascinating, and I guess he can't be included in certain sense because you're talking about you you'll have these key figures who everybody goes to to understand black issues or black problems, right? Um, I'm thinking about Adolph Reed's uh, article on uh, was it what did the drum saying Booker? Mm-hmm. You know that. Mm-hmm. I think I'm, I'm paraphrasing the title, right? But mm-hmm. he's saying that these are people who translate black experience to, to white people, right? In the sense that um, you were writing about was it Dr. Frances Henry, um, Canadian academic sociologist. Is that her name? And she was doing a similar thing, right? Like, I have to talk for you to others, right? So that's an even more condescending hierarchical arrangement, you know, that we find ourselves in Canada. Whereas in America, you got, you know, Michael, Derek Dyson, Cornel West, Bell Hooks. Maybe a couple others, and then they're your main people that you put on, you know, CNN or or what have you to kind of translate black experience. But when you have somebody like Armin, who's doing something similar to, um, I think one of the reasons why he loved the the movie The Color Purple was because it wasn't a movie where black characters were seeking white recognition. And I think that I think that Armin writes like that. He it's not something he's seeking, and 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 sometimes he could be a bit rancid about it. But I, I for me, that's why he's interesting. <laughs> Because he's very eclectic and is eccentric and is all kinds of different. His interests are just wide. Like you're not going to put him in a box. I don't know when I still read his stuff on the National Review because it's just he's just one of the more more interesting people, even if the politics don't align. But I think that's probably more of a reason to read people. You know what I mean? Um, But yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, you remind me of um, I I talk about this a lot with students. I probably talk about it in the book, too. the conversation between Gilroy and Toni Morrison, uh, where Morrison's talking about black art and how she defines black art as having the capacity to slap and embrace. And I think white writing often does that, you know, when it has a certain type of... So I, I was drawn to the distinctive energy in the writing, I think. Uh, I think yeah. Yeah. I was, I was going to just say, I think that's the teacher in Aaron who wants to desperately uh, tr- uh, translate this uh, this book. <laughs> because I was thinking, <laughs> about, like, you'd need two things. You'd need, well, for one, you're right. I'm thinking back. I think he was pretty harsh on, like, in terms of his language and his tone. Like, do you remember what he, the article, uh, the entry on Tina Turner? Uh, in, in the resistance book um, that that's very much um, you know the, the, the arm and white you would know from today who's who may be too slap happy <laughs> right and and crosses boundaries that's a great point and so for the academic perspective is also it's not just that there's a extreme assertion it's that within the boundaries of writing 
these journalistic entries, there isn't either time or inclination to substantiate the position. It's just thrown out there. Yeah, yeah. right. There, hit, yeah. hit and go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and and the other thing you'd need is a young, willing, historically curious um, student body, I guess. But but that's you guys. That's you. You. I mean, Daniel, you get people who literally come in to study. The, the folks Aaron, I, I think, is thinking about is, are maybe a bit more diffuse. And, they, and their intention span might not be too, <laughs> you know, like, why am I reading this guy about, uh, you know, about a random journalistic entry, like you say, from the 1980s. But, um, yeah, that's, I was, I was hoping that we could, um, yeah, speak to the general kind of where Armand White is at now in, in, in our current times towards the end of our chat. Um, but, yeah, if, if I could then just squeeze in my second uh, interest was... Yeah, you mentioned it earlier uh, when you were talking about the title of your book that it could have been something involving the, the concept of structures of feeling. And what I'm interested in is it's, it's a concept that I've fallen in love with and out of love with over over time. Sometimes it, it hits the nail on the head for me. And then sometimes it doesn't go deep enough or sees certain things without maybe riding through all the other um, sort of negative potentials maybe or 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 doesn't look at every all the feelings that are on the table maybe I should say <laughs> um, so so but I've, I, I'm more interested really just what the concept does for you theoretically uh, when you approach cultural and biographical history like as such uh, as the one that you have um, done here focusing on Gilroy and white and, and how, if it at all relates to your idea of soulfulness, um, how structures of feeling and your idea of soulfulness relate and then how they inform your approach to when you write a book such as this one. Mm-hmm. Another lovely question. Um, I think about structures of feeling and again, one of the, it was one of the reasons why the, the book f- kind of wanted to address that question of generational thinking is because when Raymond Williams is unpacking the concept, he talks about the idea that we see structures of feeling or we feel structures of feeling when we try and explain things to another generation and we realize they're not quite speaking the same language. And so your, your point about soul could be addressed the, the point about blackness, right? Could be addressed the someone raised in Detroit in the 1970s, when they're saying soul, when they're saying blackness, they're literally speaking a different language to someone born 30 years later in New York, right? And how do we cultivate spaces where we can address those contestations over language, um, but also think about the subtext, right? Sometimes the political subtexts, sometimes the political unconscious, in terms of what's not said as well 
right? That was that was really interesting too, um, and that's what I think a lot of the the frustrations, right? Because because I didn't realize how much almond white and polka roy piss people off. Like I just didn't I didn't comprehend it, right? Like I, I was just like okay, because I'd go to New York and I'd tell people what I was researching, and they'd be like almond white. The guy that writes for the New York Press, but he's so mean, right? He's so mean, right? And and similarly with Gilroy, like people would tell me these stories of people turning their back to him, of him, you know, commenting, "Why don't you read a book?" And it was just like I I couldn't quite grasp the the passions they elicited, really, because it was just like oh, you know kind of interesting or it's kind of difficult to read or whatever i kind of get that but this person needs to be stopped from educating our young people i, I didn't quite grasp that and so addressing that right the contestation over language and how these figures right so i would say one of the reasons why they elicit those types of reactions is that they're very unconcerned with trotting out the established group position right so it would be relatively easy for Armand to introduce two or three paragraphs that anticipated the concerns of certain types of readers Right, it wouldn't be that difficult, right? But he just refuses to do it, right? It's just why, why waste my time, right? I'm here to challenge, right? And so those types of things that he's not interested in saying what other people are saying, right? And so where does that come from, right? So it can be, you know, that doesn't have to be understood in relation to generational thinking. That can just be understood in relation to critical independence, intransigence, etc. But there is something about growing up at that particular moment where, you know, as a teenager, he's seeing these iconic figures of Muhammad Ali, Richard Pryor, asserting their autonomy in the public sphere. Right. And I think that's the crucial thing. Like, it's not just in subcultural areas, but entering into the mainstream. And then probably the subtext of the book should really have been, you know, what are the ethics of moving into overground spaces or into the mainstream? Right. That's what I was really interested in. You know, if you wanted to do, uh, a reading of what I was interested in is like, okay, how do I become middle-aged? Right? What are the models I have, right? Because um, I've, I've always been petrified about that. Like, I know how to be young. I know how to be a wise old man. Middle-aged, <laughs> you know, middle-aged just um, fills me with dread. Like, I just, it, well, it always did, Right. And so here we're, you know, what can I learn about navigating that particular journey? So like when structure the feeling, yes, like 
um, particular contexts that inform our our language, our dialect, what we take for granted, um, what we associate with meaning, and how do we communicate that within and outside of our groups, but also how do we address how the things that we hold dear are always already contested. So I wanted to ask just a just a follow up because I was watching a, one of my favorite baseball players, but he was not in my time. But I just I don't know. There was I had an affinity for him, and it's one of the reasons why I became uh, an Oakland A's fan um, as well as a Blue Jays fan. So I was watching Reggie Jackson's documentary on Amazon Prime last night. You know, I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know it was here. I was watching it, and similar um, kind of. Though his heroes are Richard Pryor, Muhammad Ali, that civil rights generation, and so he sees like players like um, Jackie Robinson and those types of figures, like they had to take a lot to get to where somebody like Reggie Jackson can come in his 70s and get underpaid in Oakland like criminally, and then go to New York and get like three million a year. But he was almost like Armand White hated till this day. He's like people still. Like, I'm doing this documentary to kind of clean up my image. I want you to get, get some empathy of how I grew up, you know, in one of the only black families in a white neighborhood, right? So he's, so I'm like, oh, this is why Reggie was like this. He's like, I'm not being recognized. I'm not being seen for who I am. And I have no patience for anything else. And I'm just going to speak truth to power. And I'm unafraid now, right? Like, he came into the MLB very quiet, played that, you know, he followed the model of Jackie Robinson, but then that black power generation coming in the 70s, it's like impatient. No, I don't care. I'm going to speak truth to power and let the cards and the chips fall with where they may. Right. And so it's like a similar kind of um, sensibility when I think about Armin and Gilroy. Right. They're like, no, like I don't need to be polite. Like my patience has run out and no, you need to get this right now. Right. So it's it's I kind of see them as a kind of second cohort to that civil rights generation before them that were you know seen as almost saintly right as far as the the narratives they like to depict for us especially at this time of the year armand white suffers no fools i think that's his best quality he's uh, and maybe i'm being selfish as well because or greedy or whatever the term is i don't suffer fools <laughs> so i if i if i sense that you're not as interested in this thing as i am or i can sense some kind of superficial superficial engagement then I either retreat or I I bring the biggest guns out. <laughs> you know, it's just something that something I don't um, I I feel that that's the, the thing that I'm, I'm drawn to. Yes, that's this this needed to be said in this way right now. But going back to the Tina Turner thing or even others uh, more you know throughout the years, you you, can't, you kind of do think to yourself. Uh, could he have said this in a different way? Could this have been approached differently? Um, is he making a performance in this moment? Is he, is he also a performer of a certain kind? That's uh, right, right. Or even to step back and ask, what is the goal? Right. So, in terms of we are avid readers of these figures, right? we've 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 engaged with them, we've enjoyed. Uh, we found pleasure in that reading. But another question to ask is, um, what have these folks built 
right? And sometimes to build things, it's not necessarily about uh, antagonizing, right? Um, but about uh, knowing when to pick certain types of battles. Right? And so you could step back and say, you know, one of the reasons we don't know about Armand is not having those built those networks with which new generations or um, people he's mentored could um, circulate his ideas. Yeah. And I think that's 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 another way in to thinking about yeah the ethics of moving into overground spaces, um, thinking about, you know, when I talked to Paul, you know, thinking about how we address, yes, the importance of cultivating environments where we can disagree in mutual respect, with mutual respect, but also addressing how that can sometimes lead to us not just talking about our friends, but also talking about our ex-friends our ex-colleagues and that um, yeah sometimes the trauma of uh, losing uh, that collegiality losing that that connection because of um, maybe not having the the soft skills that others um, value yeah that's that's really nice. That's really nice. Um, what's also nice is the, I know how to be young, and I know how to be old and wise. That's me. Me and Aaron constantly shift between what's cool and why is this cool. You know, like the New Balance shoes that are cool now that we mentioned in the in, in the email, um, and then also about wisdom, old Eritrean traditions, and how we may be able to still. You know, that's what my grandfather was talking about. I just figured it out. You know, he was he was old and wise. But in the meantime, we're kind of oscillating <laughs> between that cool and the old. It's almost like we're keeping this present at bay, you know, at, at arm's length. But uh, I think we're running out of time. Just gonna This last question, this is Aaron's question, but I like, I think it kind of gets to the centra- central uh, kind of uh, issue of the book, really. Um or the aim of the book and we although we've already spoken about it um i was kind of interested in where we what we can get out of maybe we, I, I will try to combine the questions so this is what aaron wrote uh, we can make the presumption that lively cultures go to their death when cultural performances events and products get taken as mere entertainment how do both gilroy and white save us from cultural death and imbibe us with imbibe us with new and interesting ways to see the world through the art we engage with how do they make life more meaningful through their through their cultural criticisms? And what I would add on, tap onto that is, can we still deem Armin White's kind of more more latter day work, his latter years, as being part of that kind of um, work of you know um, making our lives more meaningful? It's more difficult today to sell Armin White. Than it was even ten years ago, when at worst his enemies were, you know, new internet geeks. I remember being fifty-six pages into a forum where people just constantly talked about it just there's rows and rows of pages. Every time I went down, there was another page to click on, and people just debating 
why he didn't like Toy Story 3 or something. That was the worst of it 10, 10 years ago. Now, I think now we've kind of moved somewhere else and it's kind of difficult. In a way, I like that your book came out now, like a year ago, at this moment in time when Armand White's also kind of shifting towards a different, maybe a new phase. Um, yeah, that's the last question and I will let you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I th- I would bring it back to you know, the appreciation I have for both of you for your reading of this book as thoughtful and as uh, a way of addressing how to be interested in communicating the power of education without being didactic. And by that, I mean, you've made a lot of comments about students would love to engage with Armand's early work. And maybe, but if one approaches culture merely as a diversion at best, then not only might one be frustrated with tone of Armand's work, one could not understand why he considers culture so important. And so for me, living with Gilroy and White's writing is looking at the work as a reminder about the redemptive power of culture. That is to say, they are fully aware that they grew up in these contexts where they were watching Italian film or they were engaging with the power of soul or reggae or punk. And that opened up new worlds for them, right? So uh, culture can never be dismissed as mere entertainment. But they're always interested in how do we make uh, the music or the culture more political and the politics more fun. Because it's it's also the other side of it too. Because what often happens with folks who take black culture or popular culture seriously is people tend to take it too seriously or too literally. And so I'd, I'd probably talk about it in terms of well how do we keep it lively is a realize that it does have to be taken seriously because it is so powerful because it can open up to new worlds but also how do we prevent it becoming something that's merely trotted out um in a way of saying that this is what people need to learn here's the canon and kind of domesticate uh, the energy. So it's meaningful for me to see their journeys, to see their passion, right? For what culture can do. And then, yeah, our task is to think about how do we ensure that uh, that can be communicated to anyone right so it could be 
the person we're taking public transport with. It could be our daughters, right? That's the, the we haven't really talked about it, but that's the humanistic side of it too, right? Like, so for me, it's acknowledging what culture has meant to other people and then thinking and reflecting on what it's meant to me and then trying to A, ensure that these really powerful pieces of culture aren't lost, you know, not available anymore because Netflix can't be bothered with them, Criterion can't be bothered with them, etc. Like, there's, there's a, I think there's still a, a question around the politics of archiving, the politics of cultural gatekeeping that you can address. But also just addressing when we do work with people, talk with people about why these pieces of culture matter, how can we use uh, the resources that other people have passed on to us to ensure that we're using as vivid metaphors, as precise language as possible so that they can uh, feel, right, or at least translate what the culture means, what the culture has meant, right? Even if it's not, okay, here's how we understand how it was made, but here's how we can access why that cultural production is relevant, powerful, interesting, compelling, worth grappling with. Well, uh, and with that, I'm, I'm reminded of why I enjoyed your classes so much <laughs> um, as we come to the end of this one. I wish I, wish I was in them. I wish I was <laughs> yeah. in them. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was uh it was always fun uh, trying to chase uh, Daniel down after he decided to leave Hull, and trying to bring him back for Black History Month to give a talk, uh, or to uh, meet him down here in, in London at the Stuart Hall Library. Um, but also, yeah, the the word you use journey for me since taking up that uh, cultural studies uh, course, it's been a journey. It's the one thing that that connection to culture. It's the only thing I've had to really give to people here to make friends to make connections and uh, it's what sustained me whilst having to you know live life as a first generation immigrant looking for jobs wherever they may might be rather than wait for the one thing that I want to do and um, it's been that that balance so thank you Daniel thank you Aaron for uh, maintaining these uh, connections and uh, being journey mates, <laughs> you know, <laughs> even bedfellows. I should call you. I call you guys even bedfellows in this case. <laughs> well, the next connection is you come down here, you visit, we can meet up, all three of us, get a coffee, get a whatever, you know. We'll we'll go to that that this this sport you call baseball that you keep hyping up. That, ah, yeah, come you know, in the summer, come in the that, that, yeah. that, that whole cultural initiation that you keep. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll do that. Uh, also, I like that you mentioned our Andor episode. Me and Aaron just geek out, so it's good to know that someone listened and uh, en- uh, enjoyed it. When season two comes out, we're hoping to actually invite a couple. Uh, at least we thought of one person to invite. It would be cool if you if we could uh, reconnect and um, speak on Andor. I mean, you're always welcome. 
<laughs> oh, that'd be awesome. Like, exactly as you said, the way in which you communicate the richness of culture, like culture as something that's rich because it's stimulating, is is wonderful. It's 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 truly precious. Like, not culture is valuable because it can be commodified in this way. It can be sold in this way but the way in which you've just talked about okay culture allowed me to connect and it meant something for me to share this this record with someone that's the type of richness that Armand talks about so much like he talks about his love his sister's love for him being expressed by suggesting a certain Motown record and him listening to that Right. And that's how we communicate. That's how we continue to ensure, well, not just ensure, but how we continue to to work and struggle uh, so that we know that, like you said, we know that we're not just blown in the wind. Right? This isn't just, right? Like, this isn't just uh, idle random or isolated talk but the the frustrations the dreams the aspirations um resonate um inspire yeah and that, on that note aaron do you want to take us out <laughs> thanks for the words yeah thank you so much for joining us today Professor Daniel McNeil, it's honestly been a grand pleasure uh, to not only read the book, but to finally have a discussion with you, to talk with you. Um, has been telling me about you since 2010, your first class with him. Yeah, so this is no GPS. We were talking about thinking while black today with Professor Daniel McNeil. And um, I hope you all get as much as we've gotten from this conversation. I know that I've gotten a lot. So I want to wish everybody a peaceful, peaceful day or peaceful night. And harmony to you. Yeah. Take care, guys. Catch you on the flip side. Take care. Peace and balance. Yeah. Thank you.